0: Hello, everyone, and welcome, finally, to a brand new episode of quality content on the 2020 Network presented by Interact. I am your host, Alex Patterson. It has been a bit since I've dusted off the microphone here for my show on the 2020 Network, and I am very excited to be back. And while things have been a little quiet here for quality content, the 2020 network has been absolutely killing it for the past few months. I've been really proud of our team and the shows that we're producing, from Open to Debate with David Moskrop and Live from the 2020 studio. And that actually brings me to today's show. Typically on quality content, I talk with one person about a wide range of topics, but instead, today, I'm talking with a wide range of people about one topic, the state and sustainability of our health system in Canada. So today I have four interviews lined up. First is Bill Charnetsky, someone who is well known in the health innovation ecosystem in Canada. Before working with Point Click Care, where he is now, a medical startup in Toronto, Bill served as Ontario's chief health innovation officer, a really useful role for its time, I should say, that no longer exists thanks to the Ford government. I talked with Bill about getting a handle on what's at stake when we develop and try to deploy new medical technologies. Next, I chat with David Lee and Elizabeth Toller, two senior officials from Health Canada, about the ways that our government are trying to get a handle on regulating all of these new developments in the health technology space. Like, how exactly do you regulate a device that 3D prints tissue? Like, where do you even start? Then, I sit down with my good friend, Jody Butts, who is no stranger to the 2020 Network listeners. Jody has an extensive background, working on the front lines of healthcare delivery at Mount Sinai Hospital and in the mental health space. And we talked about the pressures bearing down on our public health system and institutions. And finally, I was really lucky to spend time with Dr. James Orbinski, who heads up the Dadala Institute for Global Health Research at York University. Dr. Rubinsky and I talked about taking a global perspective on the way that health systems work beyond our own borders, but we also use this as an opportunity to talk about the ways we can improve the public dialogue around pandemic, particularly in light of the most recent coronavirus outbreak. It was a fascinating and dare I say useful conversation. All right, I hope you enjoy. And joining me in the studio now is Bill Charnetski, the executive vice president of Health System Solutions at Point Click Care. Bill, how you doing?
1: Great, great. Thanks for
0: having me. Thanks for being here. We we approach the conversation that we've done every year, and as we said, you've participated in previous years with the the same kind of beating drum in the background of. Aging population, rising costs, uh, shifting demographics, all putting immense pressure on this health system that we 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 just hold so dear. It's a point of national pride, um, and so the we had a, a presenter this morning, Mustafa Askari, uh, chief economist at, from the University of Ottawa's IFSD, um, make the 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 counterpoint that I would. Uh, subscribe to or at least notionally think is, is the case is that, um, that medical technologies and new and emerging technologies in this space don't actually drive costs down. In fact, they drive costs up. Um, sometimes, uh, I, so th- this is what I yeah. kind of wanted to get into, yeah. right? And so what's a, what's your view on that? And, and B, um, if that is the case, how do you make it right. not that case? Because it seems like that's, it's really crucial for us to, um, keep investing in this space and keep providing people better care options. So how do you navigate yeah. that, that, that problem?
1: Look, this, I just think this is such a critical, uh, overarching, um, discussion, ultimately, policy need and namely to just split apart the way we think of biopharmaceuticals and the rest of health innovation Uh, because the policy, they're very different industries as I talked about and therefore the policy levers that you would use either to, to think of one or the other or both as economic drivers or think of one or the other as both as absolutely critical to the sustainability of our health system. The former category, biopharmaceuticals, now are – especially with the advent of immunotherapies – are increasingly expensive. And subject to health technology assessment, yes, but, but that area is getting so gray as you're looking at massive investments of a million dollars, for example, per person for relatively marginal but incredibly heart-wrenching um, you know, improvements into the life of an individual – You know, that may actually, as he was saying, actually drive the cost up of the system, especially when these health technology assessments are showing that 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 investment isn't really worth it from that clinical, if you will, analysis. On the other hand, you know, I, I, I would challenge you to find anybody in Canada that says that we couldn't improve the productivity of our health system, right? <laughs> the, <laughs> the productivity of, of, of a lot of industries, actually, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and 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 you know, it's not a bad word anymore to say to use productivity in the context of the health system, because productivity, if you look at that classic value-based care analysis, mm-hmm. is the actual patient outcomes in relation to the actual cost of delivering those outcomes. That's how you create value anywhere. It's just as it is in the health system. Uh, but, but that notion of, of, of outcomes with, uh, in relation to cost is how you create value. Yeah. And um, if you look at how basic – some of the improvements are that need to be made in our system. And again, we joke about fax machines, but it's not a joke. I think it's outside of the UK on a per capita basis, Ontario was the largest user of fax machines, our right. health system.
0: My, my wife works in a rural hospital. Right. I hear about fax machines a lot. Right. <laughs> yes. And it's it's
1: more than that. It's, it's we don't, ha- you know, in Ontario, we, we couldn't get the OMA to agree to amend fee schedules to permit virtual care. So you, So then it's, notion of watching um, patients being admitted to hospitals where the uh, emergency responders are, are – they used to fill out papers sitting outside the emergency desk. In some hospitals, they were actually uh, entering it electronically but then having to – on their own tablets but then having to print the sheets to fax them to the emergency admitting, admitting people who are right across the you know, the floor from them. And honestly, these stories, it's increased productivity, but it's also alleviating the stress of our health professionals. You know, the men and women who are doctors and nurses and, and, and all those other so critically important professions that are delivering healthcare. care. And it, to them, the fact that we're not allowing them, not creating the environment in which they can use the most modern technologies, which, by the way, they use – you know, for all personal communication and to book their appointments and their car appointments and all that other stuff is dispiriting, yeah. and it contributes to burnout. So, so it, I I understood what he like. I understood the data that he was presenting, but I am quite confident that's a result of mixing the fact that those biopharmaceuticals are over here and other things are over here. Um, and I, I think you know, to the, you asked earlier how you, as a government, you evolve. Um, you've got to find the way to create an environment with appropriate incentives for our health service providers to need to adopt and scale innovation. And innovation can be – sure, it can be we're going out for a Nobel Prize, but it can also be some version of it ain't here yet. Mm -hmm. So that basic stuff – will absolutely be cost-effective if we measure it properly, right? If we're actually measuring actual cost and actually measuring actual patient outcomes, and we'll create value in the system. I, I, there's, also, there's enough data out there from individual
0: uh, health networks and providers to confirm that. So what's exciting to you? If you sort of take a step back um, and, and we can always do better – what is that better? What's really exciting to you right now that is is just a little bit over the horizon, maybe five, ten years down the road?
1: Well, I think there's two things. Um, look, um, I understand that the relationship between the global biopharmaceutical company, innovative biopharmaceutical companies, and, and kind of anybody who's a payer is fraught. I get that. But I'll just say that we're entering an era where we are able with uh, diagnostic technologies and particularly immunotherapies to determine for whom a particular therapy is going to work so no longer are we relying on clinical trials to tell us that you know here's the pro- the likelihood the possibility that it'll work in a given to a given in a given situation for a given patient but we're going to know with real certainty that's exciting so taking away the cost element for the moment that's exciting um, I'm not saying it's going to be easy to overcome that hump, Yeah, not naive, but it's exciting. The second thing is in the the rest of health innovation, you know, we are – it's just so cool to see the potential of an offering like point-click cares, right? And as my parents get older, Mm -hmm. um, look, on the one hand, it's not particularly sexy, but when you think that we are getting to the point where even if you're in the transition from acute to post-acute – uh, but certainly if you're in post-acute, and increasingly if you're in the acute, in the hospital environment, this the availability of information is, um, it's easy. It's just going to be easy. And it's going to be easier if you're a doctor or a nurse or an administrator. It's going to be easier if you're a family member. It's sure going to be easier and better if you're the patient because it'll improve outcomes. And... And I'm saying that's exciting because I think a lot of people are talking about, you know, AI and blockchain and all these things that are really sexy to talk about. But there's a lot of stuff that can be done between here and there. And maybe I'm just too practical for my own good. But that's really exciting. And that goes back to this notion that innovation can get you on the front page of, you know, Time magazine or Nobel Prize, or it can improve patient outcomes in the moment because it wasn't here before mm-hmm. and I can get excited by that because that's the kind of stuff that's going to mean that we have better health care for our patients at a better uh, rate of investment and frankly, a we'll free money up to take care of a lot of the other things we need to worry about. <laughs> which, is not a short, which is not a short list. It's <laughs> not a short list. No. But uh, that does get me excited.
0: Maybe that makes me boring but it doesn't I mean, it's exciting. It doesn't make you boring at all. And I think it actually makes you um, it makes you a, a practical optimist. Um, and I think we maybe need a few more of those in our in our policy community, particularly in the health space. Uh, Bill Charnowski, thank you very much for your time today. If people want to keep up to date with you, uh, I know you are always free to to, to meet and consult and and, I am, yeah. and chat with people. So where, where can they get in touch? You know
1: what? Best uh, to reach me at uh, the point click care email right? Perfect. So it's yeah. William.Charnetsky, I got to spell it, C-H-A-R-N-E-T-S-K-I at uh, pointclickcare.com. Perfect.
0: And I suggest people do because uh, you've always been very uh, very kind with your time and your advice. So uh, Bill, thanks very much for your time. Yeah,
1: thanks for having me. It was fun.
0: And joining me in the 2020 Network Studio is Elizabeth Toller and David Lee. Hi, guys. Hi. Uh, So to set the scene, uh, Elizabeth, you are the Executive Director of Regulatory Innovation at uh, Health Canada in the Health Products and Food uh, branch. And David, you are the Chief Regulatory Officer uh, in the Health Products and Food branch at Health Canada. When we talk about health innovation, from your chairs and from what you do, what does that mean? How do you define it? And Elizabeth, I'll go to you first.
2: Sure. I mean, for us... At the end of the day, we are a regulator of, of food and drugs. So from our perspective, we're talking about health innovations related to the different kinds of medicines that are being um, innovated these days in the, in the biomedical sector. So some of the things that we've been kind of grappling with are like, you know, um, 3D bioprinting, where you're, you're making um, products at, at the point of care at a hospital or um, health products that are enabled with artificial intelligence, for example. So those are some of the, the innovations that we've been looking at.
0: David, as the a, as a chief regulatory officer, um, what's different about your approach to these new technologies that that wasn't the case, say, like 10, 20 years ago? Yeah, that's, that's a great question.
3: So uh, we're seeing a number of things as a regulator, because as a regulator, we stand being between uh, the development of a product and then it going out into the market and being used by people. So we realized we had to get ready. We were seeing a lot of science we hadn't seen before, a lot of innovation that's sort of fabulously new. But so we did a foresight exercise. We actually looked at, we went into academic centers and innovation hubs for health, and we were seeing amazing things. The, the, the regulations are a little old, and how we approach, we, we realized we had to, to reconfigure. So some of the diagnostics now you have are on your phone or you wear them. We regulate those. So
0: it's, it's really – it's a very different world now. And different in the sense of you have more demand from consumers that, that you know, there's just more available and do you feel that that is a bit of a driver – on the work that you do day to day. Huge driver. And there's a big variability. So we we see everything from, you know,
3: rare diseases in in infants, which is a a big issue, developing new medicines for them all the way to, we talk to groups like AgeWell, which is represents seniors and, and their health needs are very, very disparate, but they're starting to use the internet. They're starting to get diagnostics and new medicines that we need to regulate as well. So all of the sectors start to come to play and there's, there is a huge demand.
0: When it comes to regulating the health innovation ecosystem, mm-hmm. obviously you're trying to solve for things like, you know, safety and, and effectiveness and efficacy and all those things, but big picture, like what is the problem that you and your office is, is trying to solve?
2: Yeah. Um, I think that's a great question. And I think, I mean, you, you hit it home by saying like at the end of the day, you know, our number one priority is maintaining the safety, efficacy, quality of our products. But we've heard out loud and clear based on those conversations we've had with stakeholders across the whole innovation ecosystem and through, you know, the processes that the government has led in sort of understanding the regulatory barriers um, in the health and biosciences sector. And there's been a pretty clear call for more agility, more flexibility in our regulatory system. We all know that, you know, the pace of innovation is happening really quickly and it's hard for our regulations to keep up. So that's the sense central theme and sort of thesis of our regulatory innovation agenda is how we can effectively support innovation through more agility in our regulations to respond to that pace of change while we're not lowering that safety bar.
0: So I'm mindful as a regulator that one of the things that you're trying to balance is trying to find that balance for how do we let new technologies develop, try, fail, Mm -hmm. Learn and, and and recalibrate and try again. And th- that's a very familiar process across all industries. I think what's obviously different in the health space is that like – well, it's the health space. You are dealing with things that are directly interacting with disease and the human body and um, there is a medical – and a compassionate layer on top of all of this. And so I'm wondering that how does that factor in to your decision-making and, and how do you create space for people to fail safely in the medical space? So this is where uh,
3: we've been able to do some innovating as a regulator over the last couple of years. I mean, the, 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 the model globally with big pharma and the big companies for devices will stay, but we are seeing advances that again, take place in the hospital we're learning how to regulate as we're regulating, and that's become a new reality. So we in Parliament, uh, in the last budget bill, we actually walked through measures and brought in a, a new housing for clinical trials. So We upped the safety, but we can tailor the requirements so we can be very specific about what we need to know. And then also uh, a new sort of pathway to look at new technologies and, again, tailor the requirements. It's it's keeping the safety up high while sort of really specifying what
0: do you really need to know about this this new kind of product. What don't we know right now? And, and what are some of the other technologies that are, are kind of just a little bit beyond that, you know, are maybe not taking up your day-to-day right now, but you sort of see coming down the pipe that as a regulator, you're going to have to adapt and respond to mm-hmm. So we, again, our foresight uh, model was calibrated to sort of go out
3: 10 years and say, if we're going to get ready as a regulator for these, let's let's look 10 years ahead. It's hard to do in, in <laughs> the biomedical innovation mm-hmm. sector, mm-hmm. but we start to see how is artificial intelligence really going to land? I mean, there is some diagnostic work in hospital right now, but how far will that go? That's a big uncertainty. We're seeing whole new areas of treatment and potential therapy development in, in biome, for example. You've got number of biomes and, and how that affects your health. And, and maybe you put the therapies there instead of treating symptoms. That's a big new opening. Um, there's lots of crossovers between drugs and devices now. I mean, Elizabeth mentioned uh, bioprinting, but they can now print a tissue for pretty much any part of your body embedded with your own cells that are genetically repurposed. Mm-hmm. So they're starting to look at things like that, which is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, if that takes off, that, that could, you know, Really revolutionize a lot of the treatment context. So we want to. Those are the kinds of things we're looking at being ready for uh, on the health product side.
0: So uh, in short, you know, you you in no way have a busy full schedule. So <laughs> it's your your yeah. your, desk. your load's pretty light right now. We will never, <laughs> we'll never have a boring hour. Before. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Elizabeth and David, I want to thank you very much for spending some time with me here today and also with our uh, delegates at the event. And uh, if, if people want to track this process and want to stay in touch with the work that you're doing and sort of see it grow and evolve, what's the best way that people can do that?
2: They're certainly welcome to get in touch with me. Um, you know, my, my role is to, to implement this regulatory innovation agenda. I work very closely with David, but I'm happy to be sort of a window into our, in our branch to answer questions. Awesome.
0: They keep me bear- in the draft.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I pull him out to make sure. <laughs> it's good. I mean, we're
0: glad that you did. No, thank you very much. Well, Elizabeth, David, thank you so much. I appreciate your time today.
3: Yeah,
4: no problem. Thanks.
0: And with me in the studio now is Jody Butts. How are you?
4: I'm wonderful. Thank you.
0: What are some ways that you think policymakers or people in the policy community can play a more active role in keeping up with the pace of change in the health technology space?
4: Well, I mean, that's a, that it's a, it's a really big question. Um, uh, Minister Ng spoke about um, the network that, that, that was set up. by, the by Can by Health
0: Innovation Network. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Which uh, is really exciting. I mean, there, there was some series of dollars behind that yep. announcement and scale matters.
4: Yeah, no, totally. And if you look at the Naylor report, um, you know, one of the the sort of high level prescriptions was that there needed to be bold federal action coupled with prudent investment. Um, so, you know, I think this innovation network could very much um, live up to um, to that call to action. Um, the second part of the recommendation that came out of the Naylor report um, was um, a strong sense of collaboration. Um, and I feel like that is probably where we need to think a little bit more and maybe invest a little bit more. So I think a lot of innovation is happening at an institutional level and then it doesn't scale because, you know, hospital Y doesn't want to adopt hospital B's uh, solution. So a little competitiveness. Um, uh, But I also think that collaboration is in itself um, uh, an activity that needs to be resourced and nurtured. If we expect organizations to do it um, off the corners of their desks, it just doesn't happen, right? It's, it's, it has to be in the center of that desk and it has to, and the reality is, is we only view something as priorities is when there's dollars behind it. So I love the idea of the network. Um, true innovation is going to happen through a partnership between government. Um, as funder, but we heard Alex talk a lot, not as government of funder with a you know funding agreement that you know requires onerous um, amounts of reporting, where where the reporting uh, under the agreements uh, becomes a whole event in and of itself, um, almost greater than the purpose um, of the of the funding. Um, I think the second piece is is you know finding a way. To relate to the private sector, so you know um, the the private sector is often coming up with these innovations. Sometimes it's it's um, inside the public sector too, which is great. And you know, really, we shouldn't care which sector they come from. It's whether whether it's a good idea and whether whether it's going to achieve um, what, what what it sets out to to achieve. So so it's but but for sure, the private sector has a has a role to play there, um, and the public sector. So really, creating ground rules where people feel confident that they are not going to be slapped on the wrist um, for having those conversations I do think you know we talked a, a lot um, about this a few years ago you know a, a big part of innovation is failure and um, you know that's really hard when there's public uh, dollars at stake but there has to be a certain um, appetite for for failure in terms of you know the the, the things that we that we adopt. Not all of them are going to be winners. And sometimes what happens is, so sometimes we won't do something because we're so scared, scared of failure.
0: It gets at that timidness that you were talking about before. Yeah.
4: Or we spend a lot of time trying to convince ourselves that our losers are winners, <laughs> and um, you know, uh, and and we've seen we've seen this happen before, and you know, it's it's certainly not that 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 I think that you know Silicon Valley has has all the answers. I think we've seen there's some troubling aspects to to, to that Valley approach, but you know, that fail fast, fail early, fail cheap. Well, we had to be prepared to declare something a failure to really live, live up to that mantra, so you know it's it, it's it's important that 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 we that that we really try and and address that um, it, but it's also fail cheap so you, you shouldn't be putting you know tens of millions of dollars behind something going, well, it might fail so so it's you know finding a process, an innovation process where where you where you try a bunch of things that are at low cost figure out what shows promise um, and then fund those almost like a a grand challenges type of approach.
0: You talk about growing people's um, I think trust and faith in a system. Um, It's almost language that we would use to, to to inject some politics into this. Mm. We all, it's almost the language that we use when you know, you're in an election campaign, you want your candidates to grow the electorate. You want, you want to grow people's, uh, participation in the system, because what that means, it's a validation of their trust in that system. Um, so it's really interesting to apply that lens in uh, in in the in a health sense. I guess I'm wondering, like, if we don't, if we see more people turning away, what's the? Do we know what the long term detrimental impacts of that are going to be? Do we know that yet?
4: We don't know it yet, but 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 we can make some educated guesses, right? I love educated so, guesses. Yes. So okay, so number one, the best thing about a single payer system is that it keeps everybody in the system. So it keeps the wealthy in the system. It keeps uh, people who couldn't afford uh, any type of service, uh, whether they're not feeling well or not, and it keeps all the middle in there, right? So 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 it wraps its arms around everybody, and then that means. It also gives us an opportunity to have all of their volunteerism, all their feedback, and, you know, frankly, all of their data, too, to, to help develop, you know, better better healthcare systems. So, 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 so to have a single-payer system, it's really, really important, in, in my view, to have everybody in it. That's why things like user fees, which, A, don't deter someone going to an emergency department if they have an ability to pay – They're probably going to pay to go. We know this to be true. There's actually evidence behind this. And if they can't afford to pay, uh, they're going to show up uh, anyways because they know that, like, okay, send me a bill. I can't pay it anyways, you know, and we're not really going to start doing enforcement actions around around, um, user fees. It wouldn't be right and it's not even cost advantageous to do it. So, so, so that's why that, that's part of the magic of the single payer system, right? So, um, so in terms of growing um, that support, it is kind of an all hands on deck thing in my view. And, and, you know, the most pernicious thing about the procurement rules aren't that, um, you know, it's, you know, a bummer for people working inside the system because like it's another hurdle and it's another, you know, bit of red tape that that, that they don't see that, the value out of. It's because of who it shuts out like the healthcare supply chain is one of the most impermeable supply chains and it has the longest sales cycle to begin with. And this long sales cycle has nothing to do about the procurement rules. It's just about the hesitancy. And, uh, and to be fair, you know, when the butterfly flaps the wings inside of a hospital, like it can have like really serious implications. So to health, just to bring the conversation um, full circle. So, um, so, 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 you do need to be careful, so so, if we know there 's already a long sales cycle, we need to um, have that procurement system be as digestible, intelligible. And as efficient um, as, it, as it possibly can be
0: am, am, I, am I right to assume that a part of, of what excites you is the prospect of of getting more patients and and patient voices involved in this process?
4: Yeah, I think I think having more patients involved uh, in this discussion and and the people who care for them, there are so many Canadians who are caring for for an ill family member. It's just it's such an important perspective. if If we have a responsive system, uh, that means the system's going to be around. So I really like uh, public health care, whether it's single payer or multi-payer, you know, it kind of depends. But I love public health care. You know, we got public health care because we realized we are unhealthy. Healthy Canadians will make good democratic decisions. They're great citizens. They vote well. They uh, populate, uh, our, they, they support other important public institutions like our educational system, we need to be healthy. If we're not healthy, we become more polarized. We become less engaged. Uh, We start uh, making decisions that ends up either hurting ourselves or hurting our neighbor. Uh, You know, I believe in the body politic. If the individuals are healthy, the body politic is healthy. Um, And the only way... uh, you know, that, that I've seen, you know, looking across, you know, uh, the health systems of the world is when, is when it doesn't depend on your ability to pay.
0: Jody, that's a fantastic spot to leave it. So I want to thank you very much for taking some time to chat with us today.
4: Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. And joining me
0: now is Dr. James Orbinski. You are the head of the Dadala Institute for Global Health Research at York University in Toronto, and it's a real pleasure to have you here in Ottawa with us. Well, oh, thanks very much. It's great to be here. In your experience and in your opinion, do you feel that our public policy communities and, and the people that are working in our health system, are they thinking about or are, accurately sort of capturing the full global picture of stresses on our health system? And if not, what can we do to sort of change that and give that more global perspective?
5: Yeah, I think it's a, it's a tough question to answer in a simple, uh, a simple way, but I would say that, you know, the, uh, uh, our policy people uh, are under enormous pressure domestically, um, and uh, they're like policy people in most parts of the world. They're they're uh, consumed or uh, uh, possessed with the fierce urgency of now, uh, and whatever is on their plate, and whatever their minister or their their overlord is asking them to address, they they you know they they have to do it. And at the same time, they're charged with uh, with uh, bringing perspective uh, to the particular policy and to their uh, to their leadership team uh and that's a real challenge uh, especially when uh, again you're you're under such pressure uh, and and uh um those pressures are <laughs> very real um and uh, uh but i do i do think that there are uh, issues that are um increasingly front and center uh that policy people um health policy uh, practitioners and, and and thinkers uh are increasingly engaging in and these are global issues, issues of the global commons. Um, and I think uh, we look at, for example, pandemic preparedness, whether that's in relation to Ebola, H1N1, uh, MERS, SARS, uh, and now uh, COVID. Um, increasingly, pandemic preparedness is becoming um, a, a, a domain uh, where policymakers are recognizing that my well-being or the well-being of Canadians is Inextricably linked to the well-being and to the health systems of other uh, countries, right? And one cannot be uh, um, uh, isolated, uh, and it's it's a it's a, a delusion. You know, to believe that you are isolated and you can you can isolate yourself as a nation or as a society from from other nations and societies around the world. Now that that recognition requires then or demands of us that we actually recognize in certain ways that it's in our wise self interest, you know, to be concerned about the welfare and the viability and capacity of other health systems. Um, and so, I think what we're going to see very soon uh, is a much more um, rigorous attention uh, to um, Canada's role uh, in um, uh, participating in multilateral fora as they relate to health and especially to, to uh, pandemic preparedness. There are many other uh, uh, examples um, where that matters, um, but uh, that's, a, that's a very concrete one. One could also look at, for example, what we typically describe as medical tourism you know, uh, many people will go to other parts of the world, India, most especially Indonesia, uh, for orthopedic surgery, uh, for knee replacements, hip replacements. And, and, and in some cases, uh, in many cases, in fact, many people are going to Indonesia um, for uh, uh, for chemotherapy. Uh, for various forms of cancer, uh, because it 's more readily available at a fast, faster faster uh, in terms of availability, and um, uh, uh, people are willing to pay a certain amount for that access um, and this has implications for how we think about our own health system i 'm curious about what, what aren 't we paying attention to? I think the, what is now front and center for us uh, is pandemic preparedness. Uh, this is a, 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 an area that given what we know, uh, given our, our Canadian experience with SARS, um, given uh, experience over the last 15 years, 15, 17 years with a whole series of infectious diseases, MERS, SARS, H1N1, uh, and now COVID, um, we know – Uh, that this is an area of major deficit. We also know that the the Trump administration has cut or is proposing, has cut when its first year, it cut billions uh, uh, in funding for global health initiatives. Um, It uh, cut Uh, um, uh, global health's uh, uh, investment in in, uh, the State Department very significantly, eliminated everything that the Obama uh, administration had built around global health. And we also know that even in the midst of the corona uh, uh, um, epidemic uh, just a couple of weeks back, the Trump administration proposed cutting the CDC – Cutting uh, uh, by hundreds of millions of dollars its support to the WHO and cutting uh, um, very significantly its support to other uh, infectious disease containment and control strategies within the United States. That's really important because the United States has been the material and political leader on these issues. So there is a vacuum and what, what it, not only is there a vacuum but there's, there's a fragility there. Right? And I very much believe. That Canada can play a major role there, uh, not necessarily in terms of absorbing the full cuts you know that, that the Americans have, have, have uh, either made or are proposing. Uh, we just are, certainly don 't have those kind of public resources, but we can make a contribution, but we can more importantly we can we can uh, uh, exert leadership uh, um, in the world in terms of convening appropriate problem solving uh, uh, working groups. Uh, and uh convening appropriate sources of alternate funding uh to deal with uh, uh global uh health infrastructure that can help us actually contain control mitigate against the risk of epidemic or pandemic disease and i think the, the time is is uh, this is a very very good moment to recognize that and a very good example you know if you look at in in africa um the African Union is already through its own, the African CDC, Center for Disease Control. It's struggling already, even before uh, corona, struggling to maintain a proper public health surveillance capacity around, uh, around Lassa fever, uh, around Ebola, uh, around measles in the Congo. And and cholera in the Congo and Congo, as you are well aware, is a country that's still the Democratic Republic of Congo, a country that's still at war, for now more than twenty-five years, um, and where there are there's a major epidemic of Ebola, uh, and where healthcare workers, WHO people, and so on are being attacked and 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 so on, and the containment of that epidemic uh, is really fragile. So the African Union is already stretched, um, and then along comes Corona. And uh, the health systems in Africa, with the exception of Algeria, uh, Egypt, and South Africa, the health systems across the, much of the rest of Africa are quite fragile uh, and, and uh, quite, um, uh, in many cases, uh, lack the resources and the skills and competence to, to do proper public health surveillance. And so in that case, uh, we now have a, a, an extra a, a layer of, of, of responsibility through with with COVID that's now imposed on them, and it's it will it break? Will it not? I, I, I think it's I think I, I think it's a little more certain than an open question, and I don't want to you know declare either way, but I don't want to you know pretend a bad outcome. But but this is not good, uh, and this means then that that uh, uh, an epidemic like COVID, uh, a coronavirus, can become. Uh, a major pandemic uh, across the continent and, 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 and around the world because of the weakness of that system. And we're also seeing that in the Middle East and we're seeing it in the Caucasus region and in some other parts of the world. So it's a good example, mm-hmm. right, where, where uh, leadership from a Canadian perspective, based on our understanding, based on our our, our political role, based on our culture, our way of doing things, um, and based on our technical knowledge and skills and capacities and some to, to a very significant degree relative to others, our resources, we can play a major leadership
0: role. And I think we can. We, we should be doing this. Do you have any prescriptions or recommendations or just some friendly bits of advice for how we can improve the public discourse around pandemic and around covid and around these things as they as they break out because a good quality public conversation about these things, I think really, really matters. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious just from your perspective, is there anything, is there, is there like good information hygiene that we can practice here? Um, that, uh, and, and what are some of those things that you would like to see more? of? It's a great description. You know, I think so, the, you know, when you think about a,
5: an epidemic, uh, like, uh, COVID and, and soon, I think to be a pandemic, um, if not already, um, there's so much, uh, it's an unfolding epidemic. Um, And there are are things that we know and things that we don't know. And um, as it unfolds, we learn uh, and we adapt. Uh, So that's the, 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 if you will, the epidemiologic process, you know, of, of the epidemic and the learning process of the epidemic. And as long as we're able to do that, Um, uh, and act accordingly, according to our best, the best evidence available at the time uh, and the best rational formulation uh, of policy based on that evidence, Um, I think, you know, we will uh, uh, practice good public health. Um, But there's a second epidemic uh, that we have to be completely mindful of, and that's the epidemic of fear. And if... Um, an epidemic of fear takes over, it literally is like putting gasoline on a fire. It will affect the first epidemic uh, and it will have other consequences uh, in terms of human rights discriminations, uh, in terms of discriminating against uh, particular ethnicities, minorities and and vulnerable groups. And it will also uh, drive people who are vulnerable and marginalized underground. Uh, and which then makes the first wave of public health response wholly ineffective. And so one uh, 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 catalyzes and feeds yet another iteration of of, uh, inflammation uh, of the epidemic.
0: I want to thank you very much. I really appreciate you uh, providing some much-needed global context and uh, framing for this conversation. It's great. It's been a pleasure. Quality content is hosted by me, Alex Patterson. My producer is Mira Ahmad. My editor is Aaron Reynolds. And Carolyn Smith makes everything in the offices here better. The 2020 Network is proudly presented by Interact and is a production of Canada 2020, Canada's leading independent progressive think tank. If you like what you heard, please rate and review. It helps us a lot, as does telling your friends to subscribe to the 2020 Network wherever they get their podcasts. We'll certainly be glad you sent them our way. That's it for me. Until next time.